Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And this week, we are covering a Parker Pine story. Catherine, how do you feel? Are you ready? Do you know what? In the earlier versions of these, I was never ready. <laughs> but in in this sort of subset of Parker Pine, I feel slightly slightly better about covering him. I feel like yeah, we've we've eased into a little bit of a more cordial relationship with Parker Pine well, that in these I traveling sto- stories. I, possibly I have Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> that, that too. Since we know that he's kind of had that effect on some of his victims in stories past. Oh, so. at, le- at least one very directly. So. Yeah. The case of the rich woman. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I might just be very gaslit right now. <laughs> the case of the close reader. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. In any, in any case, what is the title of the story we are discussing today? It's called The House at Shiraz. Which sounds pretty intriguing, right? It does. Tell us a little bit about the publication history of The House Uh, at Shiraz. It was first published in Cosmopolitan in the U.S. in April 1933. And in the U.K. in Nash's Pall Mall in June of 1933 as In the House at Shiraz. Not a very big difference. And, of course, it was also part of Parker Pine Investigates in November 1934. Of course. Yeah, I feel like the the Nash's Pall Mall editions all add a preposition to yeah. the title for some reason. I'm not sure why, but... Yeah. So this one is also part of the Arabian Nights collection of Parker Pine Parker stories Pine. published yeah. in Nash's Pall Mall. Lovely. Let's talk about our victim, who is Muriel King, a young companion to a Lady Esther Carr, who herself is the 20-something-ish daughter of a prominent English aristocratic family. And Muriel King dies from a fall in Lady Esther's house in Shiraz. Right. And And so our suspect... We will be talking all about where Shiraz is and the sightseeing that Parker Pine is doing in just a moment. We will. But first, our suspect is none other than said Lady Esther Carr, uh, who is supposedly rather mad, which I guess runs in her family, but skips generations conveniently. (laughs) And she's now a weird hermit uh, in the house at Shiraz. In that the whole, I feel like the whole thing skipping a generation is apocryphal and not quite a thing that happens. That won't be the first bit of uh, genetic folklore that we come across no, in this story. No, really. it won't be. There will be a very big piece of that in this one. All right. Well, let's talk about the world as it appears to be, because Parker Pine is, yes, of course, still traveling, and he is now en route from Baghdad, where we last saw him in the gate of Baghdad, of course. And he has moved on to Persia, uh, what we today know as Iran. 
And he's doing a, a bit of a tour around the country to a handful of different cities. But given that he does not speak any Persian at all, he has a bit of a time trying to enter the country and finding his way around. So eventually he gets the help of a handsome young German pilot, Herr Schlagel. And Parker Pine sort of spur of the moment invites Herr Schlagel to join him for dinner. And let's just take note of the date again of publication here. Which right. Is, I know. I thought it was very interesting, right? Yeah. 1933. Uh, certainly if this story had been written 10 years later, I don't think Herr Schlagel would be a hare at all. <laughs> um, no. And I think had it been written, you know, 15 years previously, we might have some problems also. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, we're, we're in a convenient time period for the relationship between Parker Pine and Herr Schlagel. And also it turns out that Parker Pine speaks German, although we know from the previous story that he doesn't speak Arabic either. And he also only speaks enough French to um, identify passages about England. <laughs> so he's not, he's not exactly fluent in a number of languages. We'll put it that way. Well, I think this is a time when a lot of English speakers would have chosen as a second language German, right? It was more common, certainly, in the first half of the 20th century and like the latter I, half of the 19th to I take up German. So, although it seems odd that Parker Pine wouldn't speak French. That that struck me in the last story as something that, that seemed he would a speak. little... I thought that he, by the way, I think you're a cat. You may be casting some unfair aspersions on his French skills. I think he was reading a French newspaper. It's just that he was only interested in the passages that oh, were about. Okay, England. all right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He can read <laughs> French perfectly fine, but he has no interest in the French. Only the French takes on English. Sure, but that does not necessarily mean that he does not speak good French. Perhaps his French is excellent, albeit with an Anglo-centric perspective. Very possible. Very possible. <laughs> I have a memory myself when I was in elementary school and I have two older sisters and I think one of them was trying to pick what language she was going to take as her second language. And her choices were French, Spanish, and German. Mm -hmm. And that would have been probably in the mid eighties. And I can all but guarantee that German is no longer offered at that school or any typical American high school or middle I school. I mean, you know, it would have been 15 years later or something for me. And I had been taking French from like a younger age, but I think that German was still offered then too. Really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, it's not like it's unusual to study German if you're an American. It's still in a lot of um, art history and comp lit programs to mm -hmm. go to graduate school. Um, at least reading knowledge of German is often a requirement. Yeah, and I know now I'm worrying that we're going to anger some German listeners by seeming to convey the sense that learning German is beside the point, which is not at all what we're saying, just that I think there was a period when it was more commonplace than it is now for us Americans. In any case, let's move on because Parker Pine sure is moving around, isn't he, Catherine? Oh, yeah, he is. And he is hoping that Herr Schlagel will be his pilot to Shiraz, just as he has been the pilot from Baghdad to Tehran. But unfortunately, Schlagel is returning to Baghdad. He does, however, have a particularly bad relationship to the city of Shiraz, having once taken two young women there, 
the Lady Esther Carr and her young companion, Muriel King, who Schlagel had become enamored with, enough so that he had returned to Shiraz to see her. Um, unfortunately, right after that, she died in a freak fall, and the Lady Esther became increasingly mad, cutting off all contact with British society. I think the terminology is rather offensive, but, you know, she basically, quote-unquote, goes native and only sort of dresses in the local style and associates with the locals in Shiraz and has nothing to do with any Europeans and mostly, in particular, the British. Right. By the way, I I believe that before he even gets to Shiraz, between Tehran and Shiraz, he also goes to Ispahan, another Persian city that he Part of his grand tour, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Part of his grand tour. I was just, I mean, I'll be honest with you, I obviously have heard of Tehran, <laughs> but I was not familiar with either Ispahan or Shiraz. And, well, um, Shiraz was famous for its poetry, right? Correct. Shiraz is, you know, it's steeped in Persian history. It's associated with winemaking, interestingly, as well as poets and literature and gardens, which are all good mm-hmm. things. I feel like if Dolly Bantry were going to hit any city in Iran, it would definitely be Shiraz. Yeah, we get Parker Pine visiting the tomb of the famed poet Hafiz, actually. Um, mm-hmm. when he's in Shiraz, right. and uh, before he gets embroiled in the central story. Yeah, and Isfahan, too, is another major city in Iran that has a lot of classical architecture and cultural artifacts, and it's more commonly referred to as Isfahan now. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the more you know, it's always good well, to... And I, uh, I, I do think it's really funny that Pine finds the other two cities much more interesting than Tehran because we actually heard a little about this, about his opinions about Damascus in parts, but he has like some very particular thoughts on what he wants a city on this Arabian Nights sort of trip to look like. And Tehran yes. to him is too modern of a city. I think he's looking for a magic carpet flying in the air. Yeah, and- <laughs> Parker Pine Parker Pine is practicing a little bit of a gross form of Orientalism in this. Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. And let's be honest, and this is actually what I find charming about these Parker Pine stories abroad. You know, Christy is drawing on her own love of travel and the fact that she herself, I'm sure, visited all of these places. You right. Know, we know that she was a, for decades, at least a yearly, once a year visitor to the Middle East with her husband on archaeological digs and whatnot. And I think you can tell in the the sort of quotidian details that have been put into the gated Baghdad and now as he's going from Baghdad into Iran. And I guess so, I guess we're supposed to assume that they got to Baghdad safely in that Pullman coach lugging two dead bodies across the desert. <laughs> right, right. Right. Well, you know, they seemed like a pretty hearty bunch having solved a murder while stuck in the mud. So yeah, you know. yeah. Because I actually don't even think we mentioned it when we covered that story, the gated Baghdad, but the murderer after he is caught red handed by Parker Pine poisons himself like any good James Bondian sort of villain with what Pine guesses is prussic acid in his cigarette. So yeah, that means they're, they really are lugging two corpses across like hundreds I mean, of miles of desert. Just, <laughs> perhaps they just tied them to the top of the bus. <laughs> National you <know>. Lampoon style. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. She can't weigh more than a hundred pounds. Oh no, you can't put her up on that roof. 
Yes, he can. You want me to strap her to the hood? What's the difference? She'll be fine. It's not as if it's going to rain or something. Anyway, so yeah, so he's he's made it uh, at long last to Shiraz, and he's very happy. Beautiful gardens and poet tombs. There really is lovely detail in it, and there is. this idea that also Pine just thinks the city is beautiful. Yeah, and I really do mean that a lot of the charm of these stories is that you can tell they're written by someone who's been to these far-off places for 1934, really far off, you know, Mm -hmm. more so than today. So that's part of, I think, what we're getting out of these stories, which we don't always get out of a Christie short story, so it's worth mentioning. Back to Lady Esther. Pine, it turns out, actually knows a bit about Lady Esther because he knew her father, who was a Lord... I Mickledover? Here's the thing, uh, listeners, you know that as Americans, we often are not exactly sure how to pronounce every single Britishism we come across, especially when it's a proper noun. So I thought that this was pronounced Mitchell Dever, <laughs> but that just sounds ridiculous. Oh, I thought like Mickledever or Mickledever. I thought a hard C-H. Isn't it Micklemoss? It is Micklemoss, but that's M-I-C-H-A-E-L. Nothing sounds good. That's the thing. Well, Nothing sounds good to my ear. I don't know. I thought a hard C-H. Okay. I have zero confidence in any of the, of the possible <laughs> iterations, so let's just go with that. Mickledever? Sure. <laughs> All right, listeners, please feel free to weigh in and let us know the correct way to pronounce this. And the spelling, just in case you're wondering and don't have the story in front of you, is M-I-C-H-E-L-D-E-V-E-R. So, Mickledever. That would be Lady Esther's father, Lord Mickledever, who is a former home secretary under whom Pine had worked... Interesting. Oh, I think we go back to all of our theories about his involvement with the spy establishment. He's a super spy. That's just a fact at this point. And we are told that Lord Mickledever is a big blonde man with laughing blue eyes who was married to an Irish beauty with black hair and violet eyes. Interesting. Mm. Apparently craziness... (laughs) Very specific. Apparently craziness ran in the family, but skipped generations. And so Lord and Lady Mickledever were perfectly sane, competent, lovely people. It seems that the crazy, however, went to their daughter. Pine, he's in Traz, and he sees a stunning tiled house in a garden. And then he goes to the embassy, where he hangs out with the British consul, who is this genial, nice man, and Pine gets along very well with him, and the man briefs him on the house that he likes, this beautiful tiled house with a garden. And it is, in fact, Lady Esther's house. So the British Council uh, tells Pine about this, quote-unquote, accident that had happened three years earlier, right after he first arrived at Shiraz. And this poor girl had apparently fallen from a terrace while delivering Lady Esther her breakfast. And at that point, it was when Lady Esther just stopped seeing any Brits completely and only started socializing with Persians. Right. So Parker Pine, being Parker Pine, sends her a note of introduction along with a copy of, oh yes, his very famous newspaper advertising. Which apparently he just like cuts out a million of them and puts them in his bag for wherever he goes. <laughs> I think he's got like a whole little case of them. It's his calling card. It's essentially his calling card. I love that we get it reproduced yet again in this Mm -hmm. story. 
<laughs> but I'm just um, like, why, why aren't they a business card? Instead, they're like weird cut-out newspaper clippings. I know. We always get like the edges of the I know newspaper. that they're ragged. It's just like he's been ripping them out instead of just <laughs> having it printed. It's very odd. <laughs> well, that would be his Are You Happy ad, of course. And Lady Esther, somewhat surprisingly, although perhaps not, given that it is Parker Pine and he doesn't take no for an answer or he knows how to get his way, as we've seen time and time again. Uh, Lady Esther accepts his request and invites him over to her house. And he meets her, and she languidly serves him coffee. He notes that she's very exotic-looking with black hair and dark brown eyes and dressed in this sort of caftan thing that made me think of the Golden Girls. And <laughs> Out on her lanai? Yep, she's out. She's she's very much out on the lanai. The lanai is where all of this happened, really. It was just a very high lanai. Yeah, the, the lanai <laughs> just happened to be a story off the ground. Yeah, the breakfast on the lanai never sounded so deadly. That would be the tagline of the movie version of uh, this story. I don't know. I, I suppose that uh, many a person who had breakfast on the lanai with Blanche Devereaux might have thought <laughs> it was a little bit deadly. <laughs> so uh, Lady Esther has very much adopted a sort of quote-unquote oriental manner. But eventually she allows Pine to tell her about goings on in England. So he tells her all manner of things from country house gossip to movie news to new housing developments in the suburbs. And she begins to tear up a little bit. She seems to be following him very closely. Then she really starts to get emotional. And then she's just full on weeping by the time he's done filling her in on all the goings on in England. Right, and so he basically reiterates, are you happy? (laughs) Which she has been defensive about, except now she's weeping. And she finally admits, no, of course she's not happy because she can never go home again. And she says very angrily to Pine that he cannot possibly know the reason why she's not going to tell him. But, you know, yes, of course she's unhappy. She can't go home. And he tells her, actually, he thinks he does know. And she very angrily retorts, that's not possible. It turns out, though, when he's talking about this, he brings up Herr Schlagel. And Pine asks the Lady Esther, if Herr Schlagel came to Shiraz, would she see him? And she says, absolutely not. There is no way I will not see him. No, of course not. He would not be allowed admittance into the house. And Pine more or less then doubles down on this when he mentions that he has actually met Herr Schlagel and that Herr Schlagel has a deep soft spot for the girl Muriel's memory. At that point, Lady Esther seems even more devastated. Right. And it just seems like it's all kind of a mess, right? This girl who this handsome German pilot was in love with is dead and Lady Esther is miserable and refusing to talk to any British people. And how could Parker Pine possibly work his Parker Pine magic and make these people happy? But of course he can, because we are in a Parker Pine story. And it is time to talk about some rather odd clues in this Parker Mm -hmm. Pine story. But you know what? We have clues in a Parker yeah, Pine story, do. so that is something is, to celebrate. <laughs> I know. Not often do we have them. So the first clue is probably the best one, actually, which is that Lady Esther has shut herself off, but only from British people. 
And we should be suspicious about the fact that she still interacts with those who wouldn't have known her from before she came to Persia and not perhaps be as misled by this whole idea that she is crazy because... Mm -hmm. Often in Christie, not always. We just recently covered a Christie novel that dealt very much with a psychopath, an out-and-out psychopath. We sometimes have crazy people in Christie, but usually, quote-unquote, craziness is a cover for something much more rational and solvable. And um, the deduction we should draw here is that perhaps there's a different reason why Lady Esther refuses to see specifically British people, i.e. people who might know her or her family. Hmm. Hmm. Leads us into the second clue. When Pine is telling her about London and about Herschlagel in particular, her manner changes and softens, which again seems unusual for this crazy um, anti-Western European Lady Esther. And the deduction here is, well, if her reactions are not very in keeping with how Lady Esther should act, why might that be? Is there perhaps not a very obvious answer as to why that might be? And we'll get to it when we sort of resolve this, but a really close reader would also do well to note when she tears up in terms of what Parker Pine is telling her about the goings-on in England, because it's not necessarily when you would think that Lady Esther would tear up, but perhaps someone else might. Then we get to clue number three, which has to do with... Problematic. Very problematic. And here's the thing, we've come across this clue before. This clue is actually used, but tangentially, in Hercule Poirot's Christmas. So in that Hercule Poirot's Christmas was written after this story, published in December of 1938, Christmas 1938. She actually was testing out the clue first in this story, and I think we tangentially covered that clue when we covered the novel, but here it is. We are specifically told the eye color of Lady Esther's parents. Their eye color is blue. Uh, Her father had bright blue eyes. Her mother had violet eyes, which is a version of blue eyes, so light eyes. We are then also told that the Lady Esther who Parker Pine meets has dark brown eyes. And it's all very specific about the eye color. And Christy's point here and the deduction that we are meant to make is that two blue-eyed people cannot have a brown-eyed child. Now, that is not actually true. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) There is not scientific evidence to back that up. And I remember talking about this when we covered Iku Poirot's Christmas, which she's using here as Mendelian genetics, specifically the idea that Mm -hmm. there's a dominant and a recessive version of a certain trait. And two parents or two stocks who have the recessive means that in that there's there's sort of each person holds a double that they hold two recessive traits and two recessive traits. So they can only produce an offspring with the recessive traits. Unfortunately, eye color just doesn't work that simply. So it actually is possible, although extremely rare, to be fair to Christy, it is extremely rare for two blue-eyed people to have a brown-eyed child. 
but it is possible because eye color is actually controlled by two different genes. So it just all gets a little bit more complicated. But there are more simple traits in which two parents that show the recessive version could only produce a child with the recessive version. So that's the sort of proposition that she's using right. here. Right. And she's it's not totally not, right, but no, she's but she's it's, not it's, out it's, completely out of left field either. Honestly. No, it's just that eye color is significantly more complicated than that. You know, I guess maybe she was talking about attached earlobes. <laughs> like attached right. or unattached earlobes. Right. I think I think that one maybe she could have gotten away with a little bit more convincingly. But in any case, it's still kind of a clever clue. And it's and what what we're meant to realize here is that the Lady Esther Parker Pine is meeting cannot be Lady Esther because of her eye color. And the character, by the way, who we're supposed to make the same deduction about in Ercuparo's Christmas is Pilar Estravados who uh, mm-hmm. is claiming to be a part of that family the entire novel and then turns out not to be. And even though it doesn't solve the main mystery, it goes a long way toward clearing up a lot of the obfuscation in one of Catherine's favorite Agatha Christie novels. Just joking. She loathes Hercule Poirot's Christmas, right? Oh, as though Kemper says that, as though he secretly loves it and didn't complain the whole time. <laughs> I have to say, though, it's one where, after the fact, I appreciate that novel a lot more. I'm much happier having read that novel than reading it and i think i actually like a lot of what she was doing in it so i mm-hmm. i like it more than you do i forced it to climb a little bit in the rankings and i'll be honest i'm out to uh hike it up a little bit more the next time we uh go through our rankings oh dear <laughs> <laughs> in any case by the time we get to the end of these three clues we should be very suspicious as to the identity of lady esther and i would actually like to add one more Meta clue. So clue number four, which has to do with an earlier short story that we covered on this podcast. And that would be a Miss Marple short story, The Companion, published in February of 1930. So The Companion did this first, but there too, we had two women, one a companion to the other who was her employer, and they were traveling. And the crux of the puzzle in that story is that one of them was pretending to be the other. And you know what? That is not the last time we were going to come across that little bit of trickery in a Christie story. And I'm going to leave it at there because I don't want to spoil anything that we will cover and very much enjoy in the coming months. I think it is time now to resolve our mystery. Well, Parker Pine tells Lady Esther, and I'm going to put that in air quotes, that she needs to stop play acting immediately and go home to England. And why would he say that? Because, as I think we have made pretty clear, she's not Lady Esther. She's Muriel King. And she is absolutely terrified to the point that she can't leave the house that she will be charged for murdering Lady Esther when she did not. And Pine fully believes her. And then she proceeds to explain what happened. Turns out that whole madness in the family skipping a generation thing was actually true because yeah, very Lady true. Esther was cuckoo. She was just getting further and further away from reality and living alone with Muriel. She told Muriel that Muriel was her slave and that she was trapped and she could never leave. And that sounds pretty terrifying for Muriel. So she was not having a great time. And while this, all this was going on, Herr Schlagel, 
the handsome German pilot, came to visit them, having been taken by Muriel when he brought them into the country brought them to Shiraz. He came to visit, and Lady Esther uh, apparently became enamored with this handsome young man and believed that he was coming for her, but he wasn't. He was, of course, coming for Muriel. And this rejection, this disappointment, drove Lady Esther even more cuckoo. And she began verbally and physically threatening Muriel until one day Muriel snapped at her and she said, I'm stronger than you. I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. She said she was just going to leave if Lady Esther didn't treat her better. Patty Chayefsky story suddenly. (laughs) And then um, she kind of stepped towards Lady Esther. I imagine her like doing it with a little bit of like a chest pump. At the same time, like, oh, Lady Esther, take that. And Lady Esther was taken aback, literally, because she was standing on the edge of the upstairs terrace when this happened, and she took a step back as Muriel lunged at her or stepped toward her. And unfortunately for Lady Esther and for Muriel, uh, Lady Esther fell off the terrace and onto the stones below. And she died. And Muriel just went into a panic and she threw the breakfast tray down too to support this whole idea that Muriel, quote unquote, had fallen off of the terrace carrying the breakfast tray. Because of course it would be the companion who had the breakfast tray, not Lady Esther. Then fearing what would happen, she called the consulate as Lady Esther, knowing that her society status would shield her from a murder charge of her poor companion. And she said, this is what happened. And even if other people would talk as they did, and wonder if that really had been an accident. She knew that she would never be arrested, whereas if she had told the truth, she may not have been protected in the same way. Right. Unfortunately, what happened after is that she had to cut off all contact with British people, and in fact, Western Europeaners in general, because, you know, Lady Esther obviously came from a well-known family. She was afraid that someone would know who Lady Esther was and would realize the deception, and then it would be even worse for her than if she had just said something originally, because now, on top of what appears to be a murder, you also have a cover-up of it. So it's the crime, it's the cover-up. Well, here it's right. both the crime and the cover-up. Well, right. <laughs> and so, well, except there's not really a crime, right? It's the perception of a crime. So she can't go home or speak to her own, like, her own countrymen. She can never also see poor Herr Schlagel again. I smell the resolution of a love story. So Parker Pine then tells her about the British consul who he knows personally. And he says, let's go over there right now and explain what actually happened and figure out a way to get you home. And, the, you know, we, we are told that Parker Pine put the pieces together because of her reactions to their conversation, namely that she wasn't interested in society gossip as Lady Esther perhaps would have been, but in the more tabloidy <clears throat> common sort of news from right. from England, uh, which to him was proof that she had to be Muriel King and not Lady Esther. And then the whole brown eyes business, which again is not really true, but you know. Right, right. The the end. We don't we don't we don't actually get to see how it's resolved and if he brings her to the British consulate and they're like, uh yeah, you see. They're like, like yeah, actually, murderer. we're just going to execute you right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> but you know what? Parker Pine moves on to another city, I'm sure. We will get there sooner rather than later. And he has, you know, not only solved a mystery, but perhaps brought 
two lovers together by uncovering the truth as opposed to begging at least one of the parties to lie. So I'd say all around, this is actually one of the better Parker Pine stories that we've covered in a while. Oh, yeah, I think it's pretty good. I quite enjoyed this. I enjoyed his travels. I enjoyed that he actually seemed to be acting um, with compassion in this. And, yeah. and sort of responsibility. He is urging people to do the right thing and to tell the truth and to act like adults. It was a breath of fresh air in the Parker Pine verse. I know. I guess the Middle Eastern air is doing him well. And and the next time we see him, he will, I believe, be in Jordan. So he's really getting around. Wow. He really is getting around. Well, that is The House at Shiraz, the latest installment of Parker Pine. Join us next time for another mysterious Mr. Quinn story, The Bird with the Broken Wing. We are, I think, hitting actually a pretty good streak with both Mr. Quinn and Parker Pine stories. I've been really enjoying the ones that we've been covering in in the latter halves of both those collections. Well, I I usually enjoy the Mr. Quinn stories, although as listeners will know my feelings do not necessarily extend in a similar fashion to parker pine but that has um changed a little bit recently absolutely and then um our next novel yeah what is our next novel it's sparkling cyanide which features everybody's favorite christy detective Colonel Race. Oh my gosh. This is sort of an extra heads up because what I'd love to do is the episode after we cover Sparkling Cyanide, I would love to cover the short story that Sparkling Cyanide was based on, which is actually a Poirot short story entitled Yellow Iris, which itself was adapted as part of the Suchet series. So I always find it interesting when Christy expands her short stories into novels because sometimes it works such as Evil Under the Sun. Sometimes it does not, such as Dumb Witness. We shall see what the case is for that one. And I actually have fond memories of Sparkling Cyanide. I remember being a quick, fun, very Christie-ish read. It has a good title, I have to say. Yeah, it does have a good title. I like it. All right. In the meantime, we'd love to hear from you as we always do. We would really love to see you over at our Patreon site. We're having a lot of fun over there with extra episodes and talking to our patrons. If you'd like to check it out and see what's going on over there and see if it's to your liking, you can find that at www.patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash all about Agatha. You can email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at All About the Dame. You can find Catherine at Robcat. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha, and our Instagram handle is All About Agatha. And we are still getting ratings and reviews, and we still very much need ratings and reviews because they help other people find the podcast, which is happening all the time. And we want to reach as many people as we can because we know that there are countless numbers of Christie fans out there, and we've only reached a fraction. So please do rate and review us when you get a chance. It so helps us out. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.